or part as apprentice, and then he goes on to um, use some metaphor for practice. And they're just, I mean, I just get really excited when I come to that. It's such a beautiful thing. And it's so hard to understand Buddhist teaching cognitively, I think. Um, so the literature, literature just has these mini metaphors. Those are like the fingers pointing at the moon. And they, they're so much, in many ways, they're much more accessible. Um, so, um, so lately, I've kind of become a collector and even inventor of new and updated Buddhist metaphors. So like a year ago or so, I gave a talk about how race and white supremacy are examples of something in, empty of inherent existence. And I'm not sure there's a better, better metaphor for our times. I quoted this amazing sentence. Um, it's a, very Buddhist to me, very Buddhist by the scholar and historian Ibram Kendi. And he wrote, race is a mirage, but one that society has organized itself around in important ways. Excuse me, I'm going to close my door. And we could say the same about the self. The self is a mirage, but one that humanity has organized itself around in very consequential ways. In fact, karma, the word karma is a word for what we do and what happens when we organize ourselves around the mirage of self. So we can use the way we think and feel about the race construct as, as a metaphor for how we think and feel about the self and, and vice versa. Um, during the first year of COVID, Hozan, trying to learn how to call him Hozan. <laughs> it's only been 32 years we've been married. Um, uh, we did something we always wanted to do, but we never set aside the time, which is we read a sutra out loud from beginning to end. Um, and we chose the, the Lankavatara Sutra, which is supposedly a very Zen, a, a sutra that our Zen ancestors really liked. Um, and somewhere in the middle of that, I forget when, there, we came across another one of these lists of metaphors. They often come in lists too, you know? Um, and in this one, one of them was the self, you know, and these were these were metaphors for the self or or also all conditioned things, everything yeah, pretty much. Um, so one of them was a Gandharvan city. And um, I had no idea what that was. I could not relate to that at all. So I Googled it, of course, and I there wasn't a lot about it. Um, it seemed to be basically something that everybody knew about and knew was a story, you know, knew was imaginary. So I was trying to think what's comparable in this day and age and what popped into my mind was Santa Claus. I said to Hozan, oh yeah, it's like you can't kill Santa Claus, right? And because the sutra was saying something about how we're not trying to get rid of the self, we're just trying to see that there's nothing there or see into the way it doesn't exist the way we think it does at least. And so, um, you know, Santa Claus, the one at the North Pole, 
does not appear or disappear, is not tainted nor pure, does not increase or decrease, because there's no one there. <laughs> and so as long as we fixate, you know, as long as we strongly adhere, um, as long as we try to find or depend upon an inherent self, or the other way to put it more positively is until we study and see deeply into the emptiness of our self-construct, we're basically like children who believe in Santa Claus. So one of the classic, you know, confounding sentences in the Lankavatara Sutra is, you know, it doesn't exist and yet it doesn't not exist. They say that over and over. It's like, what the heck does that mean? Um, but that's like Santa Claus, right? I mean, there is no little old man at the North Pole making toys with a team of elves who gets into a magic sleigh on Christmas Eve and flies around the world with presents for all the children. But on the other hand, you can't say around this time of year, around Christmas time, you can't say he does not exist because he's on street corners and in department stores and at Christmas parties. Um, even our abbot Hoson once played Santa Claus at a, Christmas, at a wilderness travel Christmas party in, I think it was in 1990. But no matter how many Santas there are embodied or depicted in advertising, there's, we're never gonna get any closer to having an old man at the North Pole. And the way we come up with the self is we take all our thoughts and feelings and experiences and we say there must be someone who is having these things. There's some central figure fixed who is me, who's having these experiences and thoughts and memories. And that's actually kind of like seeing all these Santas on the street corners and in the department stores and at the Christmas parties and thinking, then there must be a Santa Claus at the North Pole because these these are all here but it's really not true it's just a very compelling story so buddha is saying our self doesn't exist inherently and i think most importantly it just doesn't exist the way it seems to to us you know that's the important thing how does it seem to exist to you that's what you need to look at you know and the way it feels like it does and, you know, I've come to feel like any of our insights into this, any of our insights into emptiness or our insights into the, how the self does exist, it's, it's not like the culmination of our practice, it's really the beginning of something. Because we have to, at that point, then study how does the self exist? If it doesn't exist, you know, um, the way we think it does, because when we, we may see that, we may see, even during the session, you might feel like some glimmer of that, some inkling, and it may give you some lightness or some relief, but we still have to figure out how to be with each other. And we still have to get into the details of how to bring forth an enlightened way of being with self and other. So anyway, so far so good. And if I had just stopped there, that would have been a good place to stop. I think Santa Claus is a pretty good metaphor for something that does not exist and yet does not not exist. But then it's been about a year, you know, this is, I've had a long time to mull this over and I haven't really had a chance to talk to you about it. Um, 
and I sort of like things took a strange turn, I would say, um, in my mind and my heart. Um, you know, I began to think, unlike the race construct, which is pretty much just a con and a, a marketing tool or a, you know, a, a racket or, you know, it's a way to keep people down, you know, um, Santa Claus and the self are things that have like a sort of problematic side and a beneficial side. With Santa Claus, you could say it's like a symbol of commercialism or consumerism or even maybe patriarchy. Um, but it's also just an archetypal figure of giving. And um, similarly, we can see the self as having some problematic side and some beneficial side, you know, because our belief in ourself, or, you know, maybe you could say our differences are what makes us attack and battle with each other, but it's also what makes us be able to dance. And, you know, we're able to, we, ourself maybe makes us say terrible things to each other, but it also is something that allows us to sing in harmony. It's related to creativity and, you know, individual creativity and to love because love connects us across our separateness, but it doesn't obliterate the boundaries. You know, it, you could say it takes two to tango. And two is, you know, the self is like two, self and other, or, you know, you and me. So I took a little dive into the origins of Santa Claus, which surprised me, actually. I mean, St. Nicholas was the original source of this story. Um, he was a very early Christian mystic and miracle worker. He lived around 300 in the common era. So after Buddha and Jesus, but before even our Tang dynasty Zen ancestors. And he was Greek and he lived in what's now called Tur what's now Turkey. It's called Asia Minor at that time. And he was renowned for his generosity and in particular his this secret giving. And I was telling my son Gempo, another name I'm trying to learn. Um, it's only been 27 years for him. Um, the secret giving, he, he said, Gimpo said, you know, oh, they have that in Japan, secret giving, secret good deeds. And he showed me this picture in this book, Unsui, which maybe some of you have seen has these drawings of, of monks, and it shows the secret good deeds. It's very, very charming. And I was thinking that our bag lunch project is kind of a form of secret giving because we we make these lunches and we pass them out, but we don't really know the people who we're giving them to and they don't know us. Um, the most famous or <clears throat> oft repeated in my research story about St. Nicholas's secret giving is he said to have left gold, a, big bunch of gold coins for a farmer so that his daughters could have a dowry and wouldn't have to go into prostitution. And there are many, there's a few, not many, there's a handful of stories about his giving and his miracles. Um, he was, he himself was born to a wealthy family and was orphaned at a young age. And when he became an adult, he gave away all his possessions and became a, a you know, kind of what, what we think of now, I think, as a desert father, those early, early Christian 
those early, early Christian people. Um, so then the story of St. Nicholas moved west and north, you know, through Europe, and it blended with variety of other um, fables and legends that it seemed to align with. And one of them is um, the story of Frau Holda, who is in northern Europe, and she's kind of a mother goddess figure, sometimes translated as Mother Winter. And it's said that when the snow falls, it's Frau Holda shaking out her feather pillows. And Frau Holda also carries another quality that Santa Claus has, which is it has to do with our heart's desire, asking for our heart's desire. So children would ask Frau Holda for their heart's desire. And, and you know, children line up in our culture to ask Santa Claus for their heart's desire. There will, um, there's a wonderful Jataka tale about the heart's desire. And it's, it's a bit sexist, so I'm, I'm going to read it because I, <laughs> I'm going to read what I had the way I wrote it out because I, I will mess up the pronouns, I'm pretty sure, if I try to tell it to you. So I'm just going to read it. It's, um, it centers around a being, a royal being, who, who basically asks for the Buddha's heart on a platter, so to speak. They want to eat the Buddha's heart. And so their lover, who was committed to fulfilling their heart's desire, somewhat regretfully travels around the world and comes to where the Buddha is and says, I'm really sorry about this. I don't want to do it, but I need to kill you so I can bring your heart to my beloved to eat. And when the Buddha hears the full story, he says, okay, bring me to, to them and I'll let you take my heart. So they fly back to this royal being and the Buddha starts to preach the Dharma and the royal being wakes up and realizing realizes that the heart that they really longed for was the heart of the Dharma. And you know I've been thinking we don't exactly have a Bodhisattva of giving, do we and Bodhisattva of generosity, you know, and giving is a really important practice for us. It's the first of the six perfections and giving is really love in action or it's one way to have love in action to express love in actions. So maybe there's room for a Bodhisattva of giving. And the Bodhisattva of giving would, would include this feeling of the secret giving, you know, um, and also this thing about our heart's desire, asking for our heart's desire, receiving our heart's desire. You know, Suzuki Roshi called it our inmost request. And when we, you know, we can ask for it and maybe what we get is not what we thought it was going to be. But it's good to ask. So here we are in Sashin. The word Sashin means to touch the mind or the Chinese word Shin, you know, really Shin, so shin, so shin really means heart mind, to touch the heart mind, or I would even like to say, touch the body, the heart, the mind, and the spirit. Or maybe it means to touch big mind. Big mind is what's holding everything. So we take these days of sashin to maybe touch in or touch down to hold everything that's happening. 
I like that. I love this thing that uh, Hozan talked about yesterday about the circle of practice. There's so many circles, so many ways to think about circles. And one thing that popped into my mind is the circle of our posture in a way. So, I mean, we're holding our mudra in a circle. That's one circle. But then for me, I feel like my arms are making a big circle. And the feeling of it is, is holding, holding what's happening in this moment. Somewhere Suzuki Roshi says, with our full mind, we form the mudra with our hands. With our full heart mind, we form the mudra with our hands. You know, now holding sounds a lot different from letting go, the famous letting go. Yes, language. Aren't we really supposed to be letting go, not holding on? So maybe we let go of the wall that's built up between ourselves and big mind. And then we let big mind hold us, hold everything. So the letting go part is maybe to relax, relax the muscles that are holding us apart from big mind. When I first start a period of zazen, you know, I can, I maybe find it useful sometimes to focus on what's happening by naming, you know, breath, bird, shadow, feelings, you know, stomach ache, whatever. Um, but after a while, and I don't know if you notice this too, or what you notice, if I settle in, the more I settle in, I notice that the word that words seem to come between me and my experience. And it's almost like too much work. I, I become aware of all the work involved in naming everything and knowing what's happening and having a word for it and, and an understanding or a meaning to it. And I can settle into a place where it's just really hard to separate out the hearing, which cognitively is coming from outside usually. And then the feeling of my knees, which is so-called inside, I, they're just one happening after another. And if, if I let go of the words, it's very peaceful and easeful. It's relaxing and just, you're not doing all that work. And there, you know, there seems to be some musculature involved in this separating subject and object and just letting, finding those muscles and letting them go. It's like, I'm not saying it's wrong to name, but just what about when for Sashin, you know, especially after the first few minutes of a period, you know, what about just holding what's happening and touching what's happening and merging with what's happening? Our psychophysical system is so amazing, isn't it? We have feelings and we have thoughts. 
but we also have feelings about feelings and thoughts about thoughts and thoughts about feelings and feelings about thoughts. There's just a lot going on in the world of experience, you know? So if my knee is hurting, maybe I can just be with it, hold it, focus on it, be merge with it, touch it. And that might seem like that's just me, you know? But then I could also not like it that it's hurting and I, or I could be scared or I could be angry about it hurting. And then it seems like the, the fear anger is more like me and the knee is outside suddenly, you know, I'm angry at the knee, but then I could try to turn towards that anger and anxiety and connect with it and merge with it and touch it as what's happening, just another thing that's happening. Or if I don't do that, I might judge myself for being such a bad Zen student that I can't merge and touch my pain in my knee and that I'm having this anger and fear. So then I've got the judging mind seems to be more like me and then the anger and fear seems to be more outside, you know. Um, and maybe it's not in maybe it's not me. In fact, I think sometimes the critical voice actually always seems like it's coming from outside, no matter what. <laughs> and then I have my feelings about being talked to that way, you know. And so these feelings and thoughts about they seem to be about things, but really it's just happenstance, 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 you know, experience, experience, experience. They're just successive happenings. So we just, if we just keep making the effort to turn towards these successive happenings and sometimes getting caught and then sometimes remembering to turn towards, we make this sincere effort to turn towards whatever's happening. Likely you're going to get to some place sometime during Sashin where you, what's happening is a friendly appreciation for what's happening. You are in a feeling of friendliness and, and caring, you know, and appreciation for what's happening. And that's kind of the aligning with big mind. Big mind is this holding everything with a feeling of appreciation and friendliness and caring and we just just keep stepping back until you you get there and then you are the one holding but you're also being held you're being held by big mind and you are in big mind doing the holding But we just keep getting sidetracked by caught by these things that seem so real, you know. And when we're caught by them, you know, we're back to Santa, we're back to believing in Santa Claus, right? So um, last night I hopped on the Presidio Hills and group talk and um, Steve was reading from this uh, Suzuki Roshi lecture. I thought I might read you just a little bit of it. 
It's called The Teaching Just For You, and it's a very confounding talk. And he even admits, he even admits this part of it that he does not understand. You may say, my practice is not good enough to feel the goal or the full meaning right now. But even though you say your practice is not good enough, there is no other practice for you right now. Good or bad, it is your practice. To approach perfect practice, there is no other way than to accept yourself. To say your practice is bad does not help your practice. To say your practice is excellent does not practice, does not help. Your practice is your practice. And then a little bit further on, this is not a practice that can be compared to other practices as a means of attaining something. From the experiences of many people, I would say down through history, instructions were accumulated for the forms we use and the way we breathe, just as scientific knowledge is accumulated. But Buddhist wisdom puts emphasis on the subjective side of the truth. So, the word subjective, <laughs> I feel like the word subjective is kind of an objective word. You know what I mean? So if I say this morning, objectively, I knew it didn't make sense, but subjectively, I felt I had a feeling of anxiety about giving my talk. That's one way to say it. But if I say, this morning I had a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I feel like you, you, you're there with me then, right? You, you feel that, you get that. So I've just been noticing that there's words that are distancing. There's a way of talking that's distancing and there's a way of talking that's close and connecting. And it might not be the same for all of us, but I've come to really appreciate the word feeling. It's a verb, it's a noun, it's an adjective, and it's anything you want it to be. It's a very feeling word, I think. And it makes sense to me that feelings have their own skanda. You know what I mean? Vedana, the second skanda, is sometimes translated as feelings. And that makes sense to me. Um, some Zen centers are now, now using the word sensation in, for Vedana instead of feeling. And to me, sensation is a very distancing word. So feelings. Depression, I have depression. To me, very distancing. I'm feeling really sad about my life right now. That's, that's getting almost too close to the feeling, you know what I mean? We need to be in a safe place to hold a sad feeling or to feel that big mind is holding us in our sad feeling. And for me, at least, some sad feelings just want to be held. They don't want to be transformed. They just want to be held and not at a distance, but closely. That's all they want. So sashin is an opportunity just to hold our feelings, which are a big part of what's happening, you know, at least one fifth. unless it's too much unless our feelings are too much in which case we may need to talk to someone and expand our circle of holding past trauma we've been talking 
lately on Saturdays a little bit about trauma. Past trauma is hard to hold. Personal or intergenerational trauma is hard to hold. So we need to create conditions that support holding. I mean, there's a lot of effort in the Western mode being put into this right now, but it really aligns with ancient efforts from many cultures of how to hold pain and trauma. Or it got lost, somehow we got lost in, the, in Western culture, those of us who identify with Western culture. We, got, we lost some of this, and we have this incredible distancing from pain and trauma, trying to push it away, build a wall against it. But now we're kind of circling back, getting back to ways to hold it, ways to expand the circle, ways to help each other and support each other in the holding of that. <clears throat> so I wish for your session, you know, just your sincere effort to hold what's happening. And then also at some point, pop in or sleep, lean back or rest in, best back into being held, being held by big, big, big mind, just holding everything always and is always available. So that's my talk for this morning. And uh, we do have some time for questions and I'm interested in your questions and comments. We're a little bit working as a Sangha on how to streamline or be somewhat concise, make room for other people also who wanna talk. So just keeping that in mind if you can, but we're all eager to hear each other. So please. Hi, good morning. Uh, please raise your uh, digital hand in the participants box or send a message to me in the chat box if you'd like to ask a question. Sorry. Ryushin? Lori, thank you very much for an incredibly rich uh, and deep uh, talk. We don't often talk about the emptiness of feelings, and it's such an important topic. I really appreciate the depth with which you've explored it. I'm feeling really nervous about asking my question, in part because it's been hard to formulate it, and because um, kind of flies in the face of what I think you're talking about to a certain extent. But I'm going to try anyway, and I hope that we can find our way with it. Um, for people who have had trauma, for people who live in trauma, that's a part of the culture that we're a part of, it's very hard to, um, I think, I don't understand fully uh, how to be with the emptiness or the, um, 
the ever-changing nature of something that has co continued over time immemorial. I was thinking as you were talking and using that wonderful quote from Abraham X. Kendi, I was thinking about my own trauma as a woman who's been raped and as a queer person, that uh, those feelings, I can see the complexity and the emptiness of them, but I also realize that the, I still look over my shoulder when I walk on a, a twilight street. Because those uh, causes and conditions continue. I know that there are other traumas and other traumas in the room that are ongoing here in our Zoom room. I just wonder if this is a big topic and it's uh, complicated, but I just wanted to put out those sets of feelings and that question uh, that, uh, that I grapple with and ask you how you grapple with them. It's interesting that you heard the emptiness of feelings. I mean, I think maybe that was sort of in there and implied. I don't think I said the emptiness of feelings. Um, no, no, I don't think you did either, but I think you were pointing towards the ever-changing nature of those that arise. At least that's my experience in Zazen, that it's been very freeing for me and very joyful for me to be in that place and to recognize that what's happened to me personally in my life is something that's very fluid in a certain way, and yet it's not. Yeah. It has, and I think um, some of the analogy that you used along that line comparing white supremacy and race also, it's, I, I, just, I think I understand what you were referring to but it's complicated and I'm, I'm just not sure how to think about those things uh, in the context of the talk. Yeah, so I think that I kind of what you're talking about is what I was pointing to when I said that this isn't the end of something, but rather the beginning of something, the beginning of us understanding how the self is a thing, you know. Once we understand how it doesn't exist, then we can explore how it is. So, you know, um, where was I that someone said, I was somewhere, Alan, if you remember, I, someone said, no one knows, no one, oh, <laughs> I took, went with my sister to her knee surgeon. And he said, it's really complicated with knee surgery because it has to do with which pains can be cured by surgery and which can't. He says, no one knows how your pain is for you. No one knows the pain you're feeling. And I just was shocked and stuck by that, you know? Um, and so there's, there's something to me where like, we need to tell each other how we're feeling because otherwise we don't know. Therefore, there's a kind of a self there in that moment. There's a self that I need to reveal or share or whatever. And it, I think because of karma and everything, it gets super complicated, super fast. Like it's true that I talked about intergenerational trauma, but if you're still in the conditions that are causing trauma, that's a, that's even an additional layer. So it's enough to have, have something happen to you as a child 
And then you can maybe become an adult and say, oh, that was just causes. And my mom was just, my mom didn't know about it. You know, our parents had no idea how to have children. I mean, let's just, you know, so they made mistakes. You know, they, that was their first time in a lot of cases. They really, there's no class, there's no license, there's no driver's license, there's nothing. And a lot of parents really have no idea. So when you see that, maybe you realize, oh yeah, they, they did that. They were harshly critical and that was terrible, but also that was just causes and conditions coming down the pike. That's one thing. But then, you know, if you had racism as a child and then you're still having racism, that's a completely other, that's a whole nother layer. I mean, that's, these things get layered, you know? So um, I'm not in any way trying to simplify or say that it's a simple thing, you know, what we're talking about, you know? Um, you know, I think that there's healing, there's wounding and there's healing and, you know, stopping the hurt, stopping anybody else from doing the hurt, you know, stepping in when it's happening. There's so many different things that are coming from this. And it is, it is about the self because it happened to me. And it was the way my mom talked to me. And you can't know that unless I explain it, you know? At the same time, I think my mom was God. I, I have to separate my mom from God, you know? Mom, she was just her own weird person under her own causes and conditions, you know? And, you know, I, I'm not saying to extrapolate that to white people, but except if it gives some relief, you know, like this is just a stupid thing I was taught to do. And I don't know how to, I don't always know how to stop. And it started a long time ago and I want to stop carrying it on, but I don't always know how to. And it, it wasn't, it's not truth. You know, there's no truth to it. It's completely just a weird, it's a racket, you know, it's, it's just a racket. So um, I think that's what I mean about how we have to start the conversation from the emptiness, not get to the emptiness as some kind of ultimate, um, then nothing matters or then there's no problem or it's all clear or something. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Um, Heiko or Joe? Hi, Lori, uh, thank Hi. you for your talk and, and thanks to everyone for their comments. Uh, I actually had uh, an interesting experience that seems to be uh, uh, right in tune kind of with everything that's been happening this morning in the uh, Zoom. Um, I went home last night and read uh, Nothingness, uh, Alan Watts, and I read uh, Letters from Emptiness, Suzuki Roshi, and sat and contemplated my uh, uh, anger and sat and contemplated uh, my being. And I went into uh, uh, the Zendo this morning and I recognize because of Chinese medicine, the kidneys in my back have the adrenal gland attached. And I was recently speaking with someone about ancestral energy and intergenerational uh, trauma and thinking, well, in the Chinese medicine, that's going to be in my kidney and my adrenal system. And so I just took a moment and I leaned back and I let my kidneys hang on their ligaments rather than leaning forward and putting the pressure on them, leaning back. And as I was leaning back, I started to feel uh, my father. And I recognized, yeah, okay, dad's in the kidneys. 
And then I said to myself, well, thanks, uh, but uh, I really don't want to express you anymore because everybody's tired of me being angry. <laughs> and, uh, but then again, holding, as you've been saying, and, and non-separating, as everyone has been saying, uh, I started to say, okay, let's let them hang and let dad free bit by bit. And for the last two 40 minutes since, uh, I, I, I just been grinning and, uh, it doesn't mean I'm not going to have those things, especially if, uh, I am still working with my father, but my father and I through time are now working on it. Yeah. So I, I, any comments or whatever. This Sashin is so great. If you do touch something, you can actually take the time to investigate it and feel your way into it which, and you probably will, especially in a five day, you'll touch something, you know, what do you, what, unbearable or, or impossible to deal with or totally confounding and then just sit into, sit into it. And uh, that's the beauty because we're taking this time to do this and we're not, you know, you can't do it when you're trying to accomplish things in the so-called outside world. So good job. And then Heather, hi, Heather. Good morning. Um, I'm going to go to the first part of your talk about Santa and say, I love Santa. <laughs> I just think it's like the best thing ever invented uh, or evolved. And I'm hoping to squeeze out one more year of Santa with my son before he moves on. Yeah. I'm not sure if we're going to get it or not. My question for you is to me what i there are many things i love about santa but but just this idea of of magic and surprise and delight is like the best part of being alive for me and i wonder if you see any sort of like in our spiritual development or our spiritual evolution there's a way that like the magic gets stripped away over time pretty easily if you're not careful. And I don't know if losing the magic is a necessary step in spiritual evolution. Um, or if it's just sort of the unfortunate side effect of society and being alive with many, many people and many demands on our existence. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a way to turn that whole thing around. Like if we get back to, um, you know, as a parent putting on Christmas, you know, on the one hand, basically the magic is this is not your tired, cranky, overworked, underpaid parents put, pulling this thing off, but this is magic. Santa came and he brought it down, you know, and you're the one who's sponsoring that magic. Mm -hmm. because you know what I mean? So it's sort of like seeing through the self liberates us to to be the magic because, mm -hmm. oh, there is no Santa. That's just magic. <laughs> it's magic that that came up. And it's magic that this guy did a few things in 300 and then his story journeyed around the world. That's magic. Mm -hmm. And that we still do it. And even an old Jewish guy can be invited to be Santa, you know, at a Christmas party. 
and did a damn good job, I would say. Though he had a fake beard then, but now he's got a real beard. But I think the I think you're right. We don't want to lose the magic and the sense that wow, this whole thing is just made up. Like there is no self. So everything that about myself is just something I'm making up or made up through trauma. I mean, I don't. We're not trying to whitewash. <laughs> if that's the right word. What's the hard, the the sad parts? You know, I think that's it's important not to whitewash the sad parts, but also like you're saying, it's important not to lose the magic mm-hmm. yeah thanks thank you laurie laurie there's a, a someone in the chat um wrote, and then mauro and then maybe we oh anyway yeah joel, go ahead joel wrote great talk footnote about santa claus there's a sweet video out there about santa claus causing a gay relationship it celebrates a 50-year anniversary of a milestone of gay right right i think i think norway uh that's all he says yeah that's great i'm gonna look for that and i i also wanted to add if i lost anybody using the santa metaphor please let me know later i i would like to know or you can let me know now but if you don't want to let me know now let me know later because i could i was worried about that i could imagine that you know but i'm so glad that some people just you know I love it that we, Alan and I did it every, you know, we wrap those presents on Christmas Eve and oh yeah, and it was all, everybody knew it was made up. I never told my kid, you know, I never lied to them. It was sort of don't ask, don't tell, you know, or something. But, you know, it's amazing how, what you can make up if you let yourself. So, and Mauro, is that how you say your name, Mauro? Yeah, Mauro is the best way. Mauro, Mauro, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I, had a, I had a question that is a little bit technical and I'll try to make my preface for the question as brief as possible. Um, so there, there are those of us who write uh, professionally, creatively, um, and, and many of us who write, write to, you know, to describe pain, you know, socially, personally, intergenerationally. Um, you know, in, in the, the docu-series, Pretend It's a City, Fran Lebowitz uh, reminded me that, you know, a writer's job is to make distinctions. And I've noticed that as someone who writes, it's very hard to let go of words in Zazen. And I would really like to practice that as someone who has a very intimate relationship with words. And so I was wondering if you had any advice for writers in letting words fall away? I don't know if I have the how, except just keep at it and let your mind settle. Like, I think it's almost like a brainwave thing, like the alpha waves come in and it's harder and harder to think in words, but I would just, I have a lot of faith and I believe for myself and you that the words that will come out afterward will be even more amazing and more what you meant to say and more helpful to others and more you know more what you really want to say so go forth without fear um you have nothing to lose it will all be there you know just like you know there'll still be santa on the even if you realize there's no santa claus there's still going to be that santa on the street corner shaking the you know don't worry 
don't worry for a moment it will it will all be there thank you so much i really appreciate the talk thank you hosan this maybe we could have this be the last because you know we are in sashin and all give out give hosan the last word it's okay i, I just like to respond to maro's question with a suggestion as somebody who uh, uh, really enjoys words and works with words. Um, what I've been doing for quite a while in, in Zazen is listening and seeing mm -hmm. if I can listen before the word gets attached to it. And if the word gets attached to it, fine. Then I just, but, but keep listening, have a continuity. This is going back to con continuous practice, the continuity of listening, because one sound arises after another. So that's a way, that's something you can do, redirect your awareness from your the habitual awareness of, of our words to what are the naturally arising sounds that surround us. It's, it's a wonderful practice. Yeah, the thing about the habitual, you know, there's the free, there's the freedom words underneath the habitual words. I like to read your words someday, Mauro. <laughs> I think that's good. That feels complete to me. Okay. What do you think, Gary? Yeah, I think we're ready to stop.